Our text this morning is verse 15 of John chapter 21, and specifically the question that Jesus asks Simon Peter, do you love me? And uh, the focus is on that particular part of the question, do you love me? I'm not going to spend time on the phrase more than these as a, a subject for another time, but that question that is so clear and so pointed, do you love me? And these words of the Lord Jesus, they come after his glorious resurrection. We know that the Savior had gone to the cross and laid down his life and died, was buried for three days and then rose again in great triumph on the first day of the week, what we now call the Lord's Day. And in that resurrection state, he appeared to the disciples and to many other witnesses. And some of these appearances are recorded in the Gospels. And we are told in this passage that this is his third appearance to his disciples. Now, that doesn't mean it was his third appearance altogether. We know that he had appeared to others, including Mary Magdalene. But it is the third time that our Lord had appeared specifically to his disciples gathered together as a group. Now, in John 20, the Lord Jesus first appeared to 10 of the disciples in the upper room. Judas Iscariot was dead at that point, and Thomas was absent. And then the following Lord's Day, the Lord Jesus appeared to the 11 disciples, with Thomas then present. And as some of you will be familiar with that famous interaction where the Savior invites Thomas to touch the wounds in his hands and his side. And Thomas responds with that wonderful declaration, my Lord and my God. And here in our text is the third time. And it's in the north by the Sea of Galilee. And Peter and the other disciples have gone fishing and the Lord Jesus appears to them. Now it's in the period of 40 days between the Lord's resurrection and his ascension. And it's interesting that as far as we know, the Lord never appeared to any unbeliever in that time only to his own people. It's a wonderful foretaste, by the way, of heaven itself. No unbeliever will see him in glory when the day of judgment is over. They'll never, ever see his face again. They'll be banished from that whole universe into outer darkness, but our Lord will smile upon his people forever in that state of glory at last. And so we see a little glimpse there as we go through. And then to explain just a little further, the state of, of Christ's body after his resurrection was different. He was alive from the dead and he could appear and disappear as he will. You know, for example, think of the two followers on the road to Emmaus. The Lord Jesus joined them, held a, a conversation, but at the breaking of bread after giving thanks, he disappeared, and then we find that he appears in the upper room, as you know, and then he disappeared. Now, to be clear, his body was a real body. It was not that he was merely a spirit or soul. He had his body with him, truly. But evidently, his body had new and unusual powers. And it seems he also ate with the disciples, not, again, to sustain bodily strength, but as a proof to the disciples of his reality in every way. And in this time, more importantly than some of those things, the Lord Jesus is preparing, he is teaching the disciples more of what they needed to know for the work of preaching the gospel across the world and establishing the church. And it's interesting that all of these men were, were martyred or killed eventually 
for the cause of Christ. Just about every one of these beloved friends of Jesus was stoned or beaten or in some other way brought to death. They were faithful to the end and to the glory of God. And so the Lord Jesus appears here on the, the shore of the Sea of Tiberias, another name for the Sea of Galilee, on this particular morning when the disciples had been fishing. And they had been out through the night and they had caught nothing. And the Lord Jesus calls them at first. They, they don't recognize him, but there is no disguising his voice as he speaks with that absolute authority. No failure to recognize that. And so they've been on the sea and caught nothing, but then Jesus tells them to cut, cast their nets on the other side of the ship, and when they did that, they could hardly pull the net in. 153 large fish caught just like that. It's a wonderful intervention of the Lord. It's a miracle. And there's no doubting who's on the shore. And so Peter pulls on his outer garment. He dives into the sea to swim back. And the Lord is waiting, preparing breakfast. And we're told that nobody wants to ask the question, who are you? Because they know it is the Lord. And so we come then to this interaction between Jesus and Peter. And the question, do you love me? And after they've eaten, the Lord Jesus turns to Simon Peter and he asks him, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? The same question comes three times. Now, many of you will know that it is clear that this question being asked three times is referring back to the three denials of Peter. You know, maybe you remember that when the Lord Jesus had been arrested and placed on trial, Simon Peter had followed Christ afar off and was found in the high priest's courtyard. And he came come into the courtyard and there was a fire there and as he was warming his hands, other people were around with him. And the Lord Jesus would be facing six trials in total. And whilst they could find no fault with him, three times Peter would deny that he knew Jesus. And so firstly, there was a maid of the high priest's family. She came over and looked at the man's face, revealed by the flickering fire, and said, surely you're one of his disciples. And Peter denied it vehemently. And then another young woman comes along a little later and says, surely you're one of those disciples because your speech indicates that you've got a Galilean accent. Again, Peter denies it. Another man comes along and a bystander and he says to Peter, surely you know this man and cursing and swearing, Peter denies that he knows Jesus and immediately the cock crows. And the shame and the despair fills Peter. Imagine the emotions that, that flooded his heart and he went from the courtyard and were told that he wept bitterly. And that's what he's being reminded of here in this encounter with the Lord Jesus. There are no coincidences. Notice, you know, here there is a fire on which the, the food is cooking. It's a reminder of the fire in the courtyard on that awful night. The three questions to address the three denials and above all the presence of the Savior himself asking, do you love me? Now before we get to that, let me just ask the question, how did Peter fall? Well, he was a believer and yet he stumbled badly and denied his Savior. He was a true follower of Christ, but he still sinned and fell as a believer. And you say, well, well, how? How did it happen? 
well, a couple of things. He didn't listen to the warning of the Lord Jesus. The Lord had prophesied to Peter that he would deny him three times, but Peter had not believed it. He had been so confident in his own strength, his own faith. He said, Lord, I'm going to face anything for you. I'm going to face death for you. I'm ready to lay down my life for you. But the Lord Jesus had made it clear that he would deny him three times and then the cockerel would crow. You know, we've considered it before, but it's such a vital lesson most people don't fall at the point of their weakness. They fall at the point of their strength. And that's what happened with Peter. He had great confidence in himself, but his confidence was misplaced. And yet his pride did not help him as he should have listened to the Lord Jesus. But then also he was asleep when he should have been praying. You know, you move on a little bit to Gethsemane and he was asleep when he should have been in prayer as indeed we are all so guilty of. The Lord knows we need rest. There is a time for rest, but there is a time when we need to be alert. And there are times, friends, when we choose other pleasures before the Lord Jesus Christ and we, we live for those things rather than him. Times when we choose ease in this life rather than being devoted to him. And Jesus says to him, Simon, are you sleeping? Are you so sleepy that you cannot watch with me one hour? Watch and pray. The spirit truly is willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter had not taken heed to those warnings. Friends, you know why we don't pray? Pride. If we truly understood our utter dependence upon the Lord, that we could not make it without his sustaining hand and grace, we would be so much more in prayer. But often our prayerlessness is an indication of the pride that says, I've got this. I can handle life. I can live day by day in my own strength. I'm going to look to my own resources. And it is a surefire recipe for disaster. We need to get that pride dealt with and extinguished. To humble ourselves before the Lord. To cry out to him. Well, Peter denied the Lord, and we know that he went out and wept bitterly. And no doubt those days between the denial and then knowing about the resurrection, they must have been the most terrible days of his life. Imagine the darkness and the, the despair that he must have felt. And yet now, see how Christ prepares this fire for him. And the question, he, he knew Peter's heart, and he knew Peter loved him, but in the most tender and gentle and affectionate way the Lord Jesus is going to draw him out and Peter would confess his own guilt and shame but also the earnest declaration Lord you know all things you know I love you now there are many things that we can learn here but one of them is surely this it is possible for true believers to stumble in moments of weakness and to do terrible things even to deny the Lord Jesus either with our lips or with our lives, we can behave so inconsistently at times. You know, we've all been like that. You've no doubt done it, and so have I. We've acted inconsistently. And yet there is great comfort here, and what mercy, because the Lord Jesus knows our heart, and he can forgive the sins of those who are his people who even come against him. My friends, we must remember that. And it should be a challenge to us to keep 
short accounts with the Lord. And when we know that those things have happened, when we've stumbled in that way, we need to come back quickly in repentance. Now, some might say at this point, well, what is the difference between Simon Peter and Judas Iscariot? You know, they both committed great sins. Well, Judas was never a true believer. He was never truly a Christian, never had that real saving faith. But Simon Peter did, and when he denied the Savior, it was as somebody who loved Christ, but through the weakness of his flesh, let our Lord and himself down and brought shame upon himself. And friends, you and I can so easily do the same. And it's so important every day we live to watch and pray, to not place ourselves in situations which are full of danger to run into situations where temptation of one kind or another will possibly be too great for us, whatever that temptation may be. As one explains, when we find ourselves in a situation of temptation, let us hear the cockerel sounding in our consciences. Let us flee, flee from all the dangerous temptations which may beset us in this life. And there has been a great shift so that So many people now and believers are not asking what is best in honoring the Lord, what is most honoring, but how close can I get to the world and temptation without stumbling? And that's the wrong approach. We must always seek to flee from those things that we know are dangerous. But also at the same time, we need to be careful how hard we are on other believers when they do stumble because next time it could be us. We're all frail and we all do wrong things and we need to exercise great grace and remember that the Lord Jesus Christ is ready to forgive and we should be as ready to forgive one as he is, especially those who are repentant. And so we see that Peter is in this state of failure, this state of of a mess that he's in. And now he's faced with the Lord Jesus. And we see the great challenge of love. These words must have been a great challenge to Simon Peter. And notice what the Lord particularly addresses with his question. He doesn't ask any of the following. He doesn't say, are you still my disciple? He doesn't say, do you still believe in me? He doesn't ask, are you an orthodox theologian? He doesn't even ask, are you prepared to serve me again, Peter? All of those things are important. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that they're not, and all of those things could have been asked. But what the Savior asks is this, do you love me? Now, why does he ask that? Well, you should know the answer already. The main thing is love for Christ. That is everything. What did we sing? Oh, that my soul could love and praise him more. You know, just as in marriage, love is the main thing. So in our relationship with one another as believers, love is the main thing. Above all, when it comes to God, when it comes to the Lord Jesus, love is the main thing. Where love is, everything else will be. Where love is not, the rest matters little. That's what our Lord challenges. He looks for love in the souls of his people. It's such a a vital reminder. You know, one old preacher says, love is the highest grace in existence. It is the spirit of heaven. Where people have love, then the spirit of heaven comes down. Our Lord touches this, which is the golden factor in the Christian life, 
the love which the believer has for the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 13, 13, and now abide faith and hope and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Love is the greatest grace. It is the Spirit of God. God is love. Christ is love. All the three persons of the Godhead can be characterized like that, filled with divine love. That is what they most desire. You know, you even think of that summary of the commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. That is true, pure religion. You can have all the other things, but if love is missing, the main thing is missing. When the Lord Jesus speaks to the church at Ephesus, in Revelation, he says they've got lots of good things happening. They've got all these meetings. They've got all these conferences and all these outreaches. They're busy doing so many things. And he says that he sees all of that, all of their endeavors. But he has something against them. They'd left their first love. You know what our Lord is looking for most of all in your life and in my life is this. Our love for him. Do you love me? That's what he says. That's the main thing of all. The love of Christ evident amongst his people brings down the spirit of heaven. The love of Christ is what makes all come together, oiling every aspect of our lives. And Jesus asked Peter, and he asked each one of us this morning, do you love me? And we cannot remind ourselves of this enough. God doesn't look on the outward part. He looks on the heart. The Lord is looking at your heart this morning. Do you love him? Do you love Jesus Christ? Do you love his word? Do you love his day? Do you love his house? Do you love his people? Do you love his work? You know, our Lord puts it in many different ways. And here he asks the direct question, dealing with Peter's failure. You know, even when the Lord calls him on the boat where Peter is fishing, he confronts him with his failure. Have you caught anything? No, Peter is in this state of failure. Then at the meal, he tenderly confronts him. Do you love me? You see, my friends, our Lord will challenge the love of his people's hearts. You know, I put it to you and to my own heart. Do you really love the Lord Jesus Christ? Or is he just another name to you? Just a, a famous man or a great person? That's not enough. Do you love him? That's what he's looking for. Not even that you should praise him simply or that you should claim to have some allegiance to him in some way or other. But what he most challenges in you is this. Do you love me? Do you love him for who he is, the everlasting son of God? Do you love him for what he has done? Live for us and died for us, rose again for us. Do you love him for what he is still doing, making intercession for us at the right hand of God? Do you love him because he is spiritually in union with you and you with him and you couldn't live without him? Do you love him like that? As one explains, it is impossible. But for the sake of argument, suppose that the Christian faith was shown to be nonsense. Suppose that it was shown to be all in vain. The life of the Christian would just collapse like a great house falling in ruins because Christ is everything to the Christian. Other things have their place, but Christ is everything. 
because the Christian loves the Lord Jesus. Now, it's so important for us to see the significance of the words that are used in verses 15 to 17, which aren't immediately obvious from our translation. For the Lord Jesus asked the question three times, and it unfolds like this. The first time, do you love me? And Simon Peter answers, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But he uses a different word than what the Lord Jesus uses. The Lord Jesus uses the, the strongest word for love. And effectively, the way Simon Peter answers is this, Lord, you know that I like you. You know that I have affection for you. He uses a less powerful word than what Jesus uses. And then the second time in verse 16, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? The high word again. And Peter says again, you know, Lord, that I like you, that I have strong affection for you. And maybe using this lesser word for a very obvious reason. Maybe Peter is still so deeply ashamed of having denied our Lord three times. Deeply ashamed that he, he felt it's too much to say that. You know, how, how could he say that after what he'd done? To use this high word for love after uh, what he'd done. And so he uses a lower word. And then the third time, verse 17, the Lord Jesus changes his question slightly coming down to Peter and using the lower word. And so he says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And notice that it says there that Peter is grieved because he asks him this question. And that's because in that verse, Jesus comes down from that high word to the low word that Peter was using. Do you like me? Are you fond of me? And that would have stung Peter. You see, he knew that if you don't love Christ, you have no relationship with him. You know, if any man love not our Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. Love is everything between Christ and the soul. You cannot simply say that you like Jesus. You either love him or you hate him. Jesus said, he that is not for me is against me. There's no middle ground. You know, you can't have some sort of, of minor or lesser affection for the Savior. He is God the Son. He is the Savior of the world. He is the Lord of glory. He is the everlasting Son of God. You either love him or you hate him. And that's why when Jesus asks Simon Peter that third question, do you like me? Do you have strong affection for me? It must have been like a dagger to his heart and mind. You know, my friends, our Lord knows how to humble his people when they sin against him. And if we are believers, no doubt we have experienced that at one time or another. The Lord Jesus can put us in our place very quickly when we go astray. And for Peter, his conscience wouldn't allow him to say this full word, even though he loved the Lord Jesus with his whole heart and gave his life for the master. You know, of course he loved him. He would be enabled to preach the gospel with great power at Pentecost. And for the rest of his life, he would serve the Lord that he loved. We've heard before how at the end of his life, according to tradition, he was crucified upside down because he didn't see himself as worthy to be crucified in the same way as the Lord he loved. He loved the Lord. He loved him with a deep, deep passion. And yet here we find that he struggles to say that because of his own shame. But even those who love Christ, even those who are genuine Christians at times through weakness, 
can let the Lord down and how many times I've done it and I hate that it's so. And perhaps how many times have you done it? But there is a way back. And to come and cry out for mercy and forgiveness and grace and the Lord Jesus will take up such ones in his arms again. And that's what he does with Peter here. Do you love me? He draws him out, draws him back to himself and deals with him. And we see that Peter will go on to serve the Lord. There's one final lesson that I want to bring to you this morning, just from this passage as we close. I always find it interesting that when the Lord Jesus calls across to those in the boat, he says to them in verse 5, children, have you any food? And at the end of verse 3, we're told that they've been out all night and caught nothing. It was a failure. And we have seen something of the fact that Simon Peter was in that state of failure until the Lord deals with him. But I always think it's so encouraging when the Lord Jesus says in verse 6, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find something. And so they cast and they draw it in because of this great multitude of fish. It's a great contrast, nothing and then abundant blessing. And really that was pointing forward to the day of Pentecost. And of course, Peter is going to be central in that. And it's a picture of what was coming. They themselves were a failure. They themselves had scattered. They themselves had run. And yet, the Lord had not finished with them. And when he instructs them, when they cast their net to the side of the ship, where they were told by Christ to cast it, he grants great blessing. And that is what happens on the day of Pentecost. And as the, the gospel net is thrown out, as it were, they catch this huge shoal of fish on the day of Pentecost. And Peter is the fisherman. And so you see that from this state of failure, in that restoration, in the graciousness of God, Peter is going to be used mightily in the days which are ahead. But just think for a moment. You know, this sermon that he preached at Pentecost, a net for catching 3,000 men, many more that followed on. How do you explain that? It's the precious work of the Holy Spirit. And then the way the early church grew and multiplied and, and spread across the world, and so it continues today. And the gospel continues to have tremendous impact across the globe in places like China and South Korea, Singapore, many other nations across the world. Millions of people are being saved and brought to worship this risen Jesus. How do you account for it? The very power of God. And as we consider ourselves in this country, and where are we? Well, it feels very much like verse 3, doesn't it? That night they caught nothing. That's where so many gospel churches are. Very little catch in terms of souls saved. And thank God there are some. And we rejoice over every one, ones and twos. We're so thankful that the Lord still grants tokens of his blessing. But friend, as we look at the state of things, there is a deadness, there is a spiritual barrenness amongst the churches. And we look at the country and immorality rushes in like a flood and we say, well, well, what hope is there? Is there any answer? Well, thank God there is. Because our God is great and the Lord Jesus has all power and authority 
and we need to wait on the Lord and seek his face and to be faithful in casting the net as he instructs us to do so. And when he commands, then the net of the gospel will be filled with fish again. Remember one preacher using the following account always stuck with me. And the year was 1817 and there was a, a preacher in Wales called Richard Williams. And uh, he's preaching in a farmhouse in Wales in one of the, the beautiful valleys. Wasn't a great man in that sense. Wasn't a, a famous preacher. In fact, he was known more really of, as an exhorter and even that at a local level. There are other great preachers that God was using at the time such as John Elias, incredibly used of God. But this was just a farmhouse. And there were just a, a few gathered in it. And Richard Williams was preaching. And there was just a cold, hard atmosphere. That can happen in churches. A cold, hard atmosphere. And that's what this man had and what he was facing. And you know, he was earnest before the Lord. He was doing his best and seeking to lead the people in prayer and reading the scriptures, but it just seemed lifeless. And the people were there, they, they settled down in their places to sleep, and he began his sermon on his text and just seemed so dull, and many were sorry that they'd even come at all. But then something happened in the farmhouse, and the Spirit of God came down amongst the people and they were filled with the sense of the nearness and the presence of God. And the people sitting in that farmhouse, they, they cried out from a sense of sin and conviction and their need of Christ. And those who had been sleeping, they were awakened. And when the service was over, they said, we never knew anything like that before. That experience of the means of grace, the power of God at work, the spirit of God at work, upon the preaching of the word. How do we explain it? It's the work of God. In five weeks, the whole valley was affected. Almost every household had known people being saved, brought to Christ, blessed. No gimmicks, no big name preachers, God at work. And that's what we long for. And our greatest need, we need to remind ourselves again and again, is not methods. It's not trying to please everybody. Our need is God himself. And I wonder, do we long for that? That God himself will come into the midst of his people, the one whose arm is not short, and the one who is mighty to save. And yes, the gospel net may be empty today, but let us pray that God will give the command for it to be filled. Because he is able. We cry out with Isaiah, oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down. We cry out, oh God, we are in such a condition of need. The church is barren and dead and powerless. Oh God, take hold of the heavens with both hands, rend it apart and come down upon us. Pour upon us this power from above. We can't engineer it. We can't work it out. It's not something that man can do. It is God's sovereign doing. It is his power. The presence and power of God known and felt. It's a great tragedy today in our situation that we don't know it and that we don't even long to know it. We're pursuing all manner of things, but we're not pursuing God himself. But it must begin with that challenge. Do you love me? 
Do you love me? Do we love the Lord Jesus this morning? Surely our consciences, my own conscience tells me that I don't love him as he deserves, but I long that I'd love him more. May it be that the Holy Spirit would be at work to improve in us what he has begun. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Do you love me? May it be that we say, yes, Lord, I love you and I want to love you more. Amen.